I remember a most important question I asked a girl I fell in love with. I planned it out how I was going to ask. I drove out into the mountains in southern Alberta, Kananaskis country. I'd had it kind of planned out and kind of a little bit freewheeling. Didn't know the exact spot. And the first spot I'd stopped in said something about dead man's flats and thought maybe that's not the right place for this question. So we drove a little further and found a spot. It was by the river. You could see the mountains. There was trees and long grass everywhere. And she loved nature. It was the, it was the right spot. We sat down and I prepared a little uh, photo show just of pictures of us and kind of talking about 49 different things that I loved about her. And then I got down on one knee and I asked Carrie Krupa if she would marry me. She said yes, spoiler alert. There was a, probably a lot of questions that she could have asked or later on would have asked if she would have known. You know, would she, would she move away from her family? Would she move away from the community that she had? Would she go on trips with me? Would she go have fun and laughter? Would she go through tragedy with me? Would she become a, a parent with me? There were many life situations that would come later and probably questions she would have loved to have asked, but really, no matter what question it was, it would have stemmed to that first one. It really came down to, would she marry me? Some of the things on their own she might have said no to, while as she would have said yes. Becoming a Flames fan and going on trips? Sure, yes. But moving away from people that she loved on its own, that might not have been the decision that she made. I don't know what questions you come with today, but I know that you have a lot of big life questions. Why am I here? Why is there evil in this world? Why does COVID exist? Why am I struggling? Why are my friends distant from me now? God, where are you? What's my purpose? What is this all about? Is there more to life than this? All of those are really good questions. But I think today they all stem from really a most important question. See, big questions tend to help give the foundation for questions that come after it. And as we go into this second week of our series on Colossians, we see the Apostle Paul help answer some really big questions that lay a foundation for us for life's biggest questions. In this passage, we're going to view three key questions, and they are this. Who is Jesus? What has Jesus done? And how does Jesus relate to me? The answers to these will help us face the other questions we face in life. So if you'll join me, we're going to start in verse 15. We start with this very first question of who is Jesus? In verse 15 of Colossians chapter 1, it says, Jesus Christ is the visible image of the invisible God. He's a visible image of the invisible God. Essentially, if you want to know what God looks like, look to Jesus. Remember when I was a preteen, Friday nights were big party nights, Costco nights with mom and dad. Me and my younger brother would go with our parents. My older sisters would go to youth group at the church, and we would often go and do grocery shopping at Costco. Now, you may think that that's lame, but for a teenage boy, it was awesome because Costco was littered on Friday nights with samples. You don't really get them right now. But pre-COVID, Costco has some excellent samples. And here's the thing with samples. Why they put it out is because you can try my product, with me, which maybe you're not really sure about, but you can try it and see what it actually is like. 
Chicago-style popcorn. I don't know if you've ever had it. It's cheese popcorn and caramel popcorn. From the outside looking in, it sounds disgusting, but if you've never tried it, it will change your life. Check it out. But, but that's kind of the whole point is you test something to see what it is like. You get to know what it is. This verse tells us that Christ is the visible image. Gave us something to see of the invisible God. This word image means not just looks like, but that Jesus is an exact representation and revelation of God. What Paul is saying here is that not that Jesus is like God, but he is exactly God. He is the revelation of God. Now, there are those out there who would say, well, Jesus never claimed deity himself. I've, I've read the Bible and I don't think Jesus never said the words, I am God. There was never a quote in the Bible where Jesus said, I am God, but Jesus did claim his own deity. An example of this is in John 14, verse 9, when Jesus said, He that has seen me has seen the Father, God. This is a loaded statement. Jesus is essentially saying he and the Father are connected. That would be blasphemy to the Jews. He was saying that they were the same. They were one. No one could compare themselves to God. But Jesus did because he and the Father were one. The scholar C.S. Lewis says this, I'm trying here to prevent anyone saying the really foolish thing that people often say about Jesus. That is, I'm ready to accept Jesus as a great moral teacher, but I don't accept his claim to be God. That is the one thing we must not say. A man who was merely a man and said the sort of things Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would either A, be a lunatic on the level of a man who says he is a poached egg, or else he would be the devil, uh, sorry, he'd be the devil of hell. You must make your choice. Either this man was and is the son of God, or else a madman or something worse. You can shut him up for a fool, you can spit him and kill him as a demon, or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord. But the, let us not come with any patronizing nonsense about his being a great human teacher. He has not left that open to us because he did not intend to. In John 1.18, it says this, No one has ever seen God, but the unique one, this word one is actually referring, it's a, it's a noun, referring to Jesus who is himself God, is near to the Father's heart, and he has revealed God to us. Jesus is himself God. And so if you want to know God, look to Jesus. Read about the life, the teachings, and the works of Jesus Christ. Now, in the church of Colossae, there were these Gnostic false teachers Gnostic teaching taught that there was multiple deities, more than one, and Paul is writing against this. He says that Jesus is not a visible image, as if Jesus kind of tells us a little bit of God, but there's lots of other ways you can kind of get to know God. He's not a visible image. He is the visible image of God. We'll talk a little bit more about this as we go through this morning. But let's go to number two. First question is, who is Jesus? He is the visible image of the invisible God. Number two, what has Jesus done? Specifically, what is Jesus' relationship with creation? And in this section, Paul explains a fourfold relationship of Jesus with creation. The first is this, Jesus existed before anything else. Verse 15 says this, he existed before anything and was created and is supreme over all creation. Meaning, supreme meaning he was first born. 
Now, some of you may be asking, well, how could Jesus be first born? What about Christmas? You know, as Ricky Bobby would say, sweet baby Jesus laying in, in the manger. Well, we hear that story. I've seen it at a Christmas play. How can you say that Jesus is first when there's clearly a time when Jesus was born? Now, of course, this birth was the physical body of Jesus. But the spirit of Jesus was before then. We see in John chapter 1, it says this, In the beginning. Now, you may find those words familiar because that's how the creation story begins in Genesis 1, the beginning of the Bible. In the beginning was the Word. And that word, Word, is capitalized, again, is referring to Jesus. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Jesus existed before creation because he was himself not created. Jesus was God. Jesus always was. This is what the Bible teaches. In Genesis 1.26, this happens before man is created at the very beginning of creation. And God says this. Again, there's no one for God to talk to. And he says this, let us, not let me, he says, let us make mankind in our image. Who is he talking to? There's no one else around. This is where uh, the Christian doctrine of, of the Trinity, that there is one God, but three persons, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, the Son, Jesus, was existent at the beginning of creation, and he is himself eternal. He existed before all other things. So he existed before it. Secondly, we see that Jesus created all things. Verse 16, for through him, God created everything in the heavenly realms and on earth. He made things we can see and things we can't see, such as thrones and kingdoms and rulers and authorities in the unseen world. He created everything in heaven and on earth. They were created through him. Just think about that for a second. He was a part of creating everything. Just get the vastness of that. The overwhelming creativity of God. The very smallest single-cell amoeba as we look under a microscope and see the complexity and the intricacy of the design, the intelligent design that's been done in that. And then take that to the other extreme of the vastness of our universe. You look at the, at the Milky Way galaxy, the galaxy that we exist in. Just that galaxy alone, there are over 100,000 million stars. And the Milky Way galaxy in the observable universe is one of an estimated 200 billion other galaxies. Like, grasp the, the creativity, the detail of the small to the grand in our universe. And Jesus created all of that. All of that was created through him. I don't know about you, but I found for myself, when I read through this passage again this week, it challenged me to how I limit the creativity of God and how he responds and interacts with me and with his creation. See, oftentimes when I pray, I, I sometimes feel like I almost have to inspire or bring God in. Like, let me throw you a solid. You're kind of missing it here. Or I have an idea of how you can make things better in the world. God, I need you to do this. You probably didn't know, 
but so-and-so is struggling or this is really off. So uh, I'm just going to tell you, you need to do this. <laughs> or if there's a need in my own life, I tell God what needs to happen. This is how you need to solve it. How have you limited God in your life? Are you like me and oftentimes when you face difficulties, you try to tell God to do instead of going to the God of the universe who is creative beyond what we could ever do to ask him to take your problems, to take the problems of those around you. God not only made the physical universe, but he oversees all things. It says here, thrones and kingdoms and rulers and authorities in the unseen world. This unseen world includes angels and demons. Yes, those are real things. If you believe the Bible, it teaches about this. We're not going to go into great detail about that. But one of the lies that often many people buy into is they almost get this picture in their head where there's, you know, the old yin and yang of God and the devil, good and evil, and uh, that they're kind of equal. Okay, so here's Jesus and here's Satan, and they're, they're almost equal players across the field of good and bad. And the Bible says anything but that. See, Jesus is himself God. He was not created, whereas Satan, Lucifer, was an angel. He was a fallen angel. And he was a created being and therefore is incredibly inferior and lower than. See, there is nothing in this world, seen or unseen, that you can throw or can be thrown at you that is beyond Jesus. Jesus is bigger than all of it. And he's superior to it all. Which brings us to our next point. All things exist for him. In verse 16, everything was created through him. As we discussed this in the previous verse, everything was created through him. And everything was created for him. Maybe you're like many today and you struggle with this question, what is my purpose? Why am I here? I do not want to oversimplify I don't want to oversimplify your life and the challenges that you face and the questions that you're asking. But the overarching point is this here. If you want to know your purpose, your proper function, because the proper function for all of creation is to be for Jesus, for his pleasure. Everything exists in him and through him and for him. If you want to know your purpose, your purpose is to sing to serve and bring pleasure to Jesus Christ. See, Greek philosophers of Paul's day had taught that everything needed a primary cause, an instrumental cause, and a final cause to happen. The primary cause is the plan. The instrumental cause was the power to be able to make it happen. And the, and sorry, the instrumental cause, and then there's the final cause. The final cause was the purpose. When it comes to creation, we see here that Jesus is the primary cause. He planned it. Jesus is the instrumental cause. He produced it. And finally, he is the final cause. He did it for his own pleasure. See, if everything in this world exists and its natural, original purpose is for him, 
One of the important things that you need to know about yourself and every other person you see and know around you is that no matter what you see today, there was no one and nothing that was created evil in and of itself. God didn't make anyone evil. The evil that we see around us in our world is the result of our own selfishness, our own sin, our own choices, not God's design or intent. With that, it also means that God's creation, even though it is currently under the bondage of sin, can't be, can be still be used for God's glory and enjoyed by God's people. There is nothing beyond Jesus. And there is no one that is beyond his grasp and no one that is too low that he can't use them for his glory. Creation was created for Jesus, for his will and his pleasure. Which means if you are not connected to Jesus, if you are not in line with your created function, you will always struggle with feeling a lack of complete fullness and purpose. I often think about this uh, as me being back in band in high school. I was a drummer, but it was school band, which means I barely ever got to play a drum set. Usually you'd end up getting stuck on cymbals for orchestra performances. It was really riveting. 40 bars of counting rest beats, followed by two big clashes and then another 40 bars of counting rest beats. Now, no one comes to a band performance to hear a cymbal solo. Rather, you have to find your, your purpose, you find your service in, in the greater orchestration of the number and in being involved with the other instruments and under the orchestration of the leader. You were created with precision and purpose. And maybe some of you don't feel that today and you're struggling with that, but you were and you are. You need to fulfill that purpose. You need to know that purpose and you need to get in line with your design because some of you are trying to operate outside of that and you're struggling because you maybe give this picture like you've got it together, but you know you don't. It's because you were designed for a unique purpose and that is to serve Jesus. You were designed to be connected to Jesus. Finally, uh, for this second question of Jesus' relationship with creation is he holds all things together. Verse 17, he meaning Jesus existed before anything else and he holds all creation together. He holds or he puts in place, he sets, he establishes everything, all of creation. That means everyone, everything, the whole, anything that can be, he holds all of it together. Don't buy into this lie like Jesus holds some things together. The things that make sense or the things that I can say, that looks Christian enough, that looks good enough. Jesus holds it all together. I went for a donaire last week and it said you could choose from any of the toppings and you're free to choose however many toppings you want. And as I started choosing through, I saw the word bacon on the menu, which my brain automatically says yes when I see the word bacon on anything. So I said yes, but bacon was an extra charge. See, sometimes when we read that God is in control and when we say God's in control of all things, we almost buy into this lie. God's in control of the things on this side of the menu, but he's not in control on the things of the other side of the menu. No, Jesus is in control of 
all things. He holds all creation together. And there's nothing that self-functions outside of him. Which means the very people that you know in your life that curse him and talk him down would not even have breath in their lungs to be able to speak if Jesus didn't hold the natural laws of the universe together to fill those lungs with oxygen, to give them the ability to be able to speak against him. He holds it all together. While we may find the universe overwhelming and chaotic and daunting, Jesus doesn't. You look at what's going on in the world around you and you may say, this world is out of control. Jesus says, look at me. I've got it. The crazier the world looks, the more important it is that we look to Jesus. If you've been in church, you've maybe heard the story of Peter who walks on water. That sounds crazy, doesn't it? But the disciples are in the boat and they see Jesus in the distance. It's an image and they know it is him. So Peter calls out and he calls Peter to step out of the boat. And Peter begins to walk on the waves. The wind is blowing and the waves are crashing. But Peter begins to walk on the water. But soon he takes his eyes off of Jesus and onto the waves and the wind. And he begins to sink. We are called to focus on Jesus because he's the one who orders the wind and the waves. And sometimes we get so fearful and so taken off because we're focusing on winds and waves instead of on Jesus. As you come to know Jesus, he is going to ask you to do some things that don't make sense to the natural laws of this world and to the rules that you've made for your own life. He's going to ask you to step out of a boat sometimes. But he does it because he knows what you don't. He holds it all together. And he's the only one, the only one that can hold you together. So this brings us to our final question this morning. How does Jesus relate to us? Jesus' relationship to the church. Verse 18, Christ is also the head of the church, which is his body. He is the beginning, supreme, over all who rise from the dead. So he is first in everything. The body of Christ here refers not to a single denomination or church, but the universal church of Jesus, all followers of Jesus. And Jesus is the head, the source, the origin. He is the beginning, the originator. Jesus is the first to have risen from the dead to a resurrected body. We see others like Lazarus who Jesus raised from the dead, but they died again. Jesus had a resurrected body. And with that, as the head, Jesus set a new pattern for the church to follow. Jesus supplies life to the church through the Spirit. And he has preeminence, which is a word that means he surpasses all others. He is superior to all. See, philosophers of Colossae would say Jesus was only one of many emanators from God. He was not the only way to God. Maybe you've heard that in your life. Well, Jesus is okay for you, but there's a lot of different ways to get to God. Jesus is maybe one path, but there's others. If you believe in Jesus and his teachings, he doesn't leave that choice open to you. John 14, 6, he says that he is the way, as in the only way, the truth and the life. And no one comes to the Father God but through him. In verse 19, in this passage of Colossians, it says, For God in all his fullness was pleased to live in Christ, and through him God reconciled everything to himself. He made peace with everything in heaven and on earth by means of Jesus Christ's blood on the cross. 
God was in all his fullness. This word fullness is pleroma. It was a technical term in the vocabulary of Gnostic false teachers. And it meant the sum total of all divine powers and attributes. You see, Gnostic teachers taught a dualistic theology. Essentially, since the world was full of evil, it could not have been made by a perfect God. That was their belief. So with that, there needed to be two gods. There was the monad, or supreme being, who was kind of outside of the created universe, and the demurge. He was a lesser inferior deity, and he was the one who created the universe. And here Paul is teaching God, not impartiality, but God in all of his fullness, lived in Jesus Through Jesus, God reconciled, bringing back a former state of harmony is what it means. He brought harmony again to the way God relates to you and me, to the way that we were originally designed to be in intimate communion and relationship with God. This need for reconciliation was not because God wronged you or God made a mistake. But the Bible makes it clear it was because of you and I. In verse 21, it says, This includes you who were once far away from God, you who were his enemies, separated from him by your evil thoughts and actions. See, once you were far away, or aliens is what it says here. Paul is writing to Gentile Christians, those who are outside of Israel, the Old Testament blessings that were promised by God. Some of you grew up in Christian homes and you've had the Bible teaching all your life. Some of you were aliens to God. The Bible was foreign to you. You didn't know it. It was never explained to you. You were outside of those promises. But now God's revealed those to you. Not only were you far away because you didn't know about the Bible, you didn't know about Jesus, but it also says very clearly that all of us were enemies. We were hostile, opposing God. Maybe you didn't voice that explicitly, but your life did because of sin because of your choices, thoughts, and actions that went against what God wanted for you. Romans 3.23 makes it very clear. For all have sinned. All. Again, there's no bacon side menu on this. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. In the religious institutions of Paul's day, there were these man-made structures of value and hierarchy of those who were more holy and pious because they were the ones who prayed longer and did more rituals and somehow tried to earn God's approval through their their performance. Paul attacks this because he says, listen, you are all enemies. You've all lied, you've cheated, you've stolen, you've lusted. You've all done selfish acts that have not served others or God. You were all enemies. When you gave your best, you fell short of what God demanded, which was perfection. But verse 22 goes on and it says this, Yet now he, meaning God, has reconciled you to himself through the death of Christ in his physical body. As a result, he has brought you into his own presence and you are holy and blameless as you stand before him without one single fault. He reconciled and he brought back this this relationship, this state of harmony. And he did this through his physical body. Gnostics taught that, again, the physical universe was evil, but God makes it clear it was through Jesus' human body. He was fully God and fully man. And when he died, he felt every bit of excruciation, every ounce of pain, every level of shame that could be possibly felt, he experienced. And as a result of Jesus' physical sacrifice, your spirit has been granted access to God's presence. You didn't do anything to reconcile yourself to God. You couldn't, 
but God reconciled you to himself. It says this in Romans 5, 8, but God showed his great love for us by sending Christ to die for us while we were still sinners. Because of this, we are without fault or without accusation. You don't belong with him because he requires perfection and you're not perfection. What the Bible tells us is that God reconciled us and Jesus, by paying the cost for your sin and paying for your sin by his death, he took his perfection and he put it on you so that you could once again be united with God. He brought you, he reconciled you back to himself and now calls you son and daughter. Finally, in verse 23, Paul gives this encouragement, but you must continue to believe this truth and stand firmly or lay a foundation firmly in this. Don't drift away from the insurance you received when you heard the good news, the gospel of Jesus. This good news has been preached all over the world and I, Paul, have been appointed as God's servant to proclaim it. Don't move away. Don't drift this word could also be translated as uh, don't be earthquake stricken. Colossae was a, a region that was known for earthquakes. Paul's saying, get your foundation right. Don't worry about all the peripheral stuff. Get the foundation of who is Jesus. Because you get this question, it's going to let you answer all the other stuff. You got to know who is Jesus. What has he done? And how does he relate to you and to me and the world around us? There's going to be earthquakes that are coming in your life. You need to be prepared. The key is to hold on to the good news, the gospel of Jesus. Don't go chasing and running around to find out the next self-help, what the world has to say, to try and accumulate stuff or try to manipulate the world around you to do things you want. You need to get a hold of the answers to the most important questions. Who is Jesus? He is the image of the invisible God. He is God's own son. What has he done? He created the world, all of creation, and it was intended and designed to worship him, in him and through him. And he is Lord over all creation, which means nothing that you face in this world, nothing can overwhelm him and nothing is outside of his grip, his power, and his control. And finally, how does Jesus relate to you, to, I, to me, and to his church he reconciled you and I to God through the sacrifice of his death on the cross so that we could take on the perfection that he lived with, that we were called to live with, and once again, be in right standing with God. If this is true, what I'm saying about Jesus, if this isn't true, I should say, then all of this is nonsense. But if this is true, this is all that matters. And this is the important question today, who is Jesus? If you've never made that decision for yourself this morning and you believe that Jesus is who he said he is, you can simply invite him by praying, confessing that you know who he is, that you know that you aren't perfect, that you need his forgiveness, and inviting him to come to live in you and to lead your life. For those of us who are followers of Jesus, some of us need to be reminded again and come back to the core, to the foundation, because there are earthquakes happening in our lives and we're being shaken because we're trying to stand on anything but that foundation. Come back to the truth, who is Jesus in my life today? Who is Jesus in relationship to the world around me? Who is Jesus in me?
praying for you, church.